Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is February the 5th, 2021. Boy, oh boy, time marches on. Uh, It seems like the Biden administration has been in power for years. You know, time flies when you're having fun. I thank you for joining me on my program. Well, we try to sort out the madness of the preceding week. Uh, and there's no shortage of madness. And uh, so here we are. Um, I used to watch uh, a bunch of the comedy shows. <clears throat> Pardon me. I hate when I get a, a frog in my throat. I wish Kermit would go away. Um, but I always think back to the life of Chester A. Riley, the life of Riley, that he would mug for the camera when something would go wrong and stare into that camera and say, what a revolting development this is. Or if you remember Laurel and Hardy, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into, Ollie. You know, well, here we are. If we want to start out looking at what Biden is doing, again, all roads seem to lead to our borders metaphorically. It's not just the Mexican border or the Canadian border or our coastline or our international airports. It's the entire immigration system. And nobody ever seems to ask politicians, and they haven't asked this question for the longest time, maybe we should reach out to these alleged journalists and say to them, why don't you ask a fundamental question? How will your policies improve the lives and the future of Americans? When you're dealing with a mayor, ask them how the policies that they're coming up with will improve the lives of the people who live within their cities or if it's a governor within their states. Why is it? And it just occurred to me the last couple days, if you really want to define it down to a single question that never gets asked, why should your decision make the people under your jurisdiction happy? Why are you happy? Forgive me. Why should we be happy, for example, that the Biden administration wants to bring in an additional 125,000 refugees Many are coming from countries uh, that don't make it easy for us to figure out who these people are or what threat they pose to our safety. And even beyond that, why during a pandemic, when businesses have shut their doors, some of them forever, hospitals in some communities are overwhelmed, funeral homes in some communities are overwhelmed, we can't seem to produce the vaccine to protect people from COVID-19 fast enough. Is this really the time to invite more people into the United States? Seriously. If you don't have enough food to feed your children, are you going to make dinner for the people in your neighborhood? If we can't feed our own children, that's a serious problem. America can't feed all of its own children right now. Unemployment records are terrible. Wage suppression, terrible. The government under Biden apparently is going to give $1,400 to uh, most citizens in the United States um, to help them through a very tough time. Uh, How does it help us to bring more people in? Seriously, just think about that question, and then we'll get to the other aspects of immigration. But first and foremost, if you had $50 to go out and buy pizza, would you invite 500 people to your house? You'd say, gee whiz, five pizzas? Maybe I can, you know, whatever the number is, you figure out how many slices there are. That's how many people you invite. This is as though we have a pizza pie and we're inviting in hundreds of people to share the uh, wealth. At what point do our politicians from both parties Make the priority, not the Chamber of Commerce, not the American Immigration Lawyers Association, not the banks that are happy to move money around. You know, banks are moving companies. When foreign nationals come to our country and work and send money home, they become the silent partner, don't they? So they're happy to move money out of our country. 
to bleed our economy. Last year, Mexico got a record amount of money wired home, these remittances so-called, over $40 billion. Now, not all of it was from the United States, not all of it involved illegal aliens, but the great majority of that $40 billion were people from Mexico working in the United States. And that doesn't cover the whole story because so much more money gets moved covertly. They don't wire it. <clears throat> they might buy gold or, or, or some other substance and move it. They might um, stuff couches and other upholstered furniture with money and ship it across the border. They might load it into refrigerators and washing machines. People do very creative things to move money. So the $40 billion is only a fraction of the total amount of money that went to Mexico last year, but that doesn't cover the rest of the countries around the world. And the United States is one of the primary countries where people come to the United States so they can send money to their families in their home countries. And I don't blame them. If you could get away with it, why wouldn't you? If you couldn't afford to feed your family, let's say you could go to Canada or go to Mexico and earn more money there than you could possibly earn in the United States if you had a job, and if the government there said, well, we have immigration laws, but we really don't care about the laws. You can come down here and work, and we'll take care of you, and we'll make sure that if you lose your job, we'll even give you unemployment benefits, even though working is illegal for someone who's not here with the appropriate visa. You'd have to be a damn idiot to not go to Canada or go to Mexico or do what you had to do that's in your own best interest. The problem is the U.S. government is not operating where the best interests of America or Americans are taken into account. How does it help Americans that we bring in more foreign workers each and every year than the number of new jobs we are creating? That's a reasonable question, folks. This isn't xenophobia. I don't care if these folks are from Europe or Asia or Africa, the Caribbean. I don't care. If we have a shortage of work, why would you bring workers into a country that doesn't have enough jobs for its own people? I want someone to explain this because I'm sitting here with my abacus and I'm doing the math and the math doesn't work out. Maybe, maybe somebody is smarter than I am. What sense does it make to import workers into the United States when we don't have a shortage of workers, folks? We have a shortage of jobs for Americans. We have a shortage of jobs for lawful immigrants. And it's only getting worse. And now we're back to catch and release on the border, which is very dangerous. And this is not a statement of xenophobia. Everyone makes these great statements. Oh, my God, you just don't like immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. You're anti-immigrant. No, I'm not. But we admit roughly a million lawful immigrants every year. I don't know what the numbers were last year because of COVID. I'm sure the numbers are lower. But we're still admitting lots of people. And we have a shortage of jobs. So... How do we miraculously bring in people and at the same time take care of struggling Americans? And the answer is you can't do that. It doesn't work. It's bass backwards. You would think that a country's first concern would be the well-being of its own citizens, but it's not. You would think that when crime goes up, you would want to have more cops on the street, but they don't. <clears throat> Defund police is insanity. Are there problems with law enforcement? Sure there are. Are there bad cops? Yes. Now, look, I've worked very closely with many police departments, and not just from the United States, but from around the world. I got an award from the National Police of Japan. I work closely with the Israeli National Police. And police have a common job no matter where you go, unless you're dealing with dictatorships, and then the police become political police, which we've almost gotten to that point today. Hate speech, right? They want to have a bureau of, of truth, I guess, with the Biden administration. Don't you dare utter hate speech. There goes the First Amendment. So God only knows if Biden and, and, and the leftist lunatics get away with it, <clears throat> maybe they'll have the police <clears throat> arresting people for, for hate speech. And, and, and what's hate speech? Well, apparently they thought hate speech uh, were the people who figured out um, how to deal with Wall Street. So the wealthy were getting hammered. So that was supposedly hate speech. I thought hate speech is speech that insults people, uh, that demonstrates discrimination and racism and bigotry. But what do I know? I'm just a poor schmuck in Brooklyn looking at the madness playing out across this country, scratching my head and asking myself, will somebody restore some sanity to our country? Will someone have the guts to stand up and tell the truth? 
we're seeing radicalization, frankly, on both sides. And why does that happen? How does that happen? Well, during tough economic times, people want someone to blame. I had a job. I lost my job. I can't support my family. Why did this happen? And when people are under that kind of stress, you run a very real risk that if you scapegoat a group of people, you could start a war among races. And that's what we're hearing now between white privilege and all this other business. Um, in the Holocaust, we saw this where the Jews were scapegoated. Other minorities were scapegoated. You could be a smashing success if it wasn't for Group X or Y or Z. It's almost reminiscent of that in the United States today. We're supposed to judge people by who they are as human beings. None of us control that we were born, period. Right? There's no process where God comes to you and says, would you like to go to earth? You can be born. No, it doesn't happen. So here we are. We're the victims of actions we didn't take, but we're here. We're alive, and we have our lives, and hopefully we want to be happy and productive and decent human beings. We have no control over our gender. We have no control over our skin color. Our religion was probably passed down to us by our parents <clears throat> who, who raised us a certain way, and obviously we're free to change religions if we want, but most people retain the religions of their families. Uh, my mother was Jewish. My father was Jewish. I'm Jewish. My children are Jewish. Okay? That's normal. It's reasonable. It's rational. So can you blame Mike Cutler because he has white skin? I don't think so. Can you blame me because I was born a man? I don't think so either. Can you blame me because my parents raised me to be Jewish? No. But yet when you hear this nonsense about dividing people up by race and all this other crap, I thought we were making progress to get away from such narrow-minded, stupid, dangerous concepts. As Martin Luther King said, you judge a person by the character of his soul, not the color of his skin. I believe those were his words. Oh, my gosh. So now we're going to go back and blame people because of their color, because they have privilege, supposedly. Tell that to the people waiting for food on that line near the synagogue near my house, because every morning when I wake up and I, I look out two blocks from my house to where there's a synagogue, I see a line of cars stretching for about a half mile of people looking for food, waiting patiently and politely in a long line waiting for food. The bread lines are back, except people don't stand in the bread lines. They sit in their cars waiting for food. Many of them are white. Are you going to tell them they have white privilege? All this does is rile people up, anger people towards one another. If ever there was a time we need to have a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood and teamwork, it's during a time of a crisis. The worst thing and most irresponsible thing you could do during the time of crisis is to pit one person against another person over issues they have no control over. And it's funny, I was just looking online because of all the allegations about the white supremacists and the fact the military apparently is going to shut down for a couple of months, according to the Secretary of Defense, to make sure that we don't have any um, you know, lunatics in the military. What perfect timing. Iran is, is, is working, you know, speedily towards nuclear weapons. China is, is doing their thing. Russia is doing their thing. Our military is going to stand down. It's the twilight zone. But in the middle of all of this, we're pitting American against American, telling people that their problem is the fault of somebody else. It couldn't be more dangerous or more stupid or more foolish or anti-American. On 9-11, nobody looked at skin color, folks. I was here. We were all Americans. Everybody had American flags attached to their cars. And those same cars had the photographs of their loved ones who they would never see again. It upsets me to talk about it. I will be honest. I think I still have, and I'm sure I still have post-traumatic stress over 9-11. Most people who were here suffer from that. Because the cars drove by with flags and little pictures saying, have you seen my father? Have you seen my son? Have you seen my brother? Have you seen my wife? Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And we were all Americans, as indeed we are. 
And now we're being told that if you're one color or another color, that somebody has an advantage over somebody else. This country is turning into a tinderbox. And we saw craziness happening on January the 6th with with the the lunatics that stormed the Capitol. There was only a handful that did it, relatively speaking. And the the lunatics on the left are comparing that with 9-11. No, it, it was a serious riot, but now we're going to use the term terrorist, so I guess we can use the Patriot Act against American citizens. Perhaps that's where this is going. But if you look back to the president's campaign, that is President Trump's campaign in 2016, I went online. Check this out, because you'll see what I'm telling you. All of the news organizations, didn't matter, ABC, NBC, all talked about how Trump supporters came out of Trump rallies and were beaten, had food thrown at them, they were beaten up, they were, they were punched, they were kicked, they were stomped on, to supporting President Trump. It was Maxine Waters who said, go out there and if you see a member of the cabinet, meaning the Trump cabinet, get in their face, tell them they're not welcome, and all this aggressive insanity. Chuck Schumer stood on the steps of the Supreme Court while the Supreme Court was in deliberations and warned the Supreme Court in general, but the two newest members at the time specifically, Gorsuch, if you vote the wrong way, you will inherit the world with you won't know what hit you. You won't know what hit you. Is that a conversation about a debate, about a meeting of the minds of intellectual discourse or a threat? Maybe I'm nuts. But I heard in that voice both the tone and the words and the mob of people waving banners, and they were very loud on the steps of the Supreme Court while the court was in session and deliberating. This wasn't on Sunday when nobody was there. The Supreme Court justices were in the court, and this mob, this riotous, loudmouthed senator from New York, who's now the, the leading senator in the Senate, right? Supreme Court justices if they voted the wrong way. And then we had what happened on January 6th, and now we're being told that this is sedition and it's insurrection and it's terrorism. If I was a Supreme Court judge, I would have been very upset listening to a senator saying, you won't know what hit you. It's a how dare you moment. What applies to One has to apply to all. That's what equality means. That's the word they don't want to use. They use equity, not equality, and they're not equal, to coin a phrase. There is no equality when you're talking of equity rather than equality. We're all supposed to be equally protected by the law, and we're all supposed to be made equally accountable under the law. If you go back to the days of discrimination an offense that might not have gotten a white person tried for a felony would certainly have gotten a black person tried. Does flipping it the other way around make things right? Two wrongs don't make a right. We need to learn from the mistakes of the past, but that requires the study of history. And, of course, with this cancel culture, nobody wants to learn history. So we'll get to repeat the mistakes that history should have taught us if we ignore the history That really is a lesson. My father used to say to me, Mike, there's no mistakes in life, only lessons. We learn from what goes wrong and then act appropriately in the future. That's how history teaches nations and its leaders lessons. So we're going to ignore history so we can go out and repeat the mistakes. Biden says he wants to unite Americans. How? By flinging open the borders, creating greater hardships for Americans, And when you bring in illegal alien workers, you're bringing in people that are going to probably displace uh, America's minorities for one reason or another. And these are the issues we should be addressing. Education is not necessarily as valued in in poverty-stricken neighborhoods. Perhaps it's because education is out of reach. Or perhaps it's because of a sense of hopelessness. Think about this. And education is an investment in your future. It's an investment in your future. You go to college for four years, five years, six years. You spend money. It's a lot of commitment of time and energy and effort. And then you say, but when I get out of college, I will have a much brighter future. 
because the education will qualify me to take much better jobs. Not anymore. Not anymore. We're importing record numbers of foreign workers, and Joe Biden wants to flood America with high-tech workers. So what's the point to going to college? What's the point? And if you live in poverty, how do you even think about college when you don't know where you're going to get your food tonight? The future to someone living under those circumstances is tomorrow morning, not five years from now. The immediacy of hunger, the immediacy of poverty makes it hard for rational human beings to think five years into the future when they're concerned, am I going to get shot on my way home tonight or what am I going to have for dinner because I don't have any money in my pocket? So education becomes a secondary consideration and time passes all too quickly and people who live in poverty who aren't able to get that education, their fate is sealed. They're not going to get high-paying, decent jobs to begin with and now you add to that the fact that we want, they're going to be flooding America with an army of foreign workers, including high-tech workers, because that's what Joe Biden wants. Placating which lobbying group? Certainly not Americans. I saw a poster not long ago, and it showed a whole mob of people, and it was chilling because under this big picture, there was an overhead shot of lots and lots of people the, the, the tagline was, come back when you have a lobbyist. Come back when you have a lobbyist. I thought that the Congress, the House of Representatives, think what those three words are, House of Representatives, was supposed to represent Americans. If the House of Representatives represents Americans, Americans don't need lobbyists. That's why we have the House of Representatives. That's what the Founding Fathers had in mind, isn't it? But that's not the case. Because the members of Congress are bombarded on an hourly basis by lobbyists over a broad spectrum of issues who promise them campaign contributions if only they will deliver the vote on a critical issue that probably screws over Americans. It seems of late that any time a bill is passed in Congress, it doesn't make things better for Americans, but worse, much worse. Now, why is that? If it's the House of Representatives, who the hell are they representing? Well, I'll tell you who they're representing. It's people with deep pockets. They really need to have an official in our government. The position isn't created yet, but they need to create one. At least then we're going to be honest. We need to have the official auctioneer. When was the last time you saw a piece of legislation that was passed where Americans said, wow, they're looking out for us? It's not what the government is doing for us these days, folks. It's what they're doing to us, restricting us, making us compete with foreign workers. You name it, they're doing it. And who's always on the short end of the stick? The American citizen. And now you add to that stress and that anger this notion that we're going to get Americans angry at one another. So while we're fighting among ourselves, we're ignoring what's being done to us by people that were elected to represent us, our families, and our futures. Think about that level, that magnitude of betrayal. This isn't a left-right issue. This isn't a conservative issue or a liberal issue. Look, I consider myself an old-time liberal. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. The Democrats have become fascists. I was raised that liberals are willing to accept that other people have different ideas and a different belief system and we were supposed to be respectful of everyone's opinions unless their opinions cost people their lives. You know, Nazism, well, that's not an opinion you're entitled to, period, okay? But whether it's birth control, whether it's, you name it, <clears throat> I was raised to believe people are going to differ. And we can have that disagreement, and the way you resolve it is through civil discourse. I was on the debating teams in high school and college. I had planned to teach debate on the college level. Debate is the highest form of intellectual achievement. It's intellectual capitalism. You bring your ideas. The people that disagree bring their ideas. You have a debate. There's certain rules of etiquette and procedure. And the audience is kind of like the consumer who decides <clears throat> which argument carried the day carry the argument that they agree with now. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be. But goodness gracious, where in the world have we gone? 
you can't have debate anymore without being accused of uttering hate speech. And who's the arbiter that determines what hate speech is? And while we're being bombarded from all directions with propaganda and Orwellian language, the Biden administration is opening up the borders, catch and release is in full swing. And think how dangerous that is. Iran is talking about nuclear weapons. I mean, they're denying it, but news reports are showing that they're getting closer and closer to having enough fissile material, nuclear materials, to create a bomb. And just two days ago, it was reported that 11 Iranian citizens were caught trying to sneak into the United States. Now, I'm not saying they're terrorists. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also saying they're not. we don't know if they're not terrorists. We don't know what we don't know. And when Biden says, well, we've got to make sure we don't let terrorists in, most terrorists don't show up on, in any databases. They don't. The whole point to being a terrorist, just like a spy, is to not attract the attention of anybody, not even the classic example, that waiter or waitress in the Greasy Spoon Diner. <clears throat> when you watch James Bond movies, it's fantasy, uh, whether it was Sean Connery or, or anybody who followed in his, in his large shoes uh, to take the role of James Bond. You know, he wore these, you know, expensive suits with a gold Rolex watch driving his Aston Martin. Oh, my goodness, you know. He looked like somebody out of GQ magazine on steroids. If you look at the average spy, it's somebody who probably is wearing blue jeans and sneakers or an inexpensive sports jacket, totally nondescript, nobody that stands out. The idea is you pass them and you don't even remember them. They're totally forgettable. That's what the average spy looks like. The same thing is true of the average terrorist. Most terrorists, just blend in. They don't have criminal histories. They don't spit on the sidewalk. They don't do anything to call attention to themselves. They just get here and they wait for that tap on the shoulder when they're called into action. That's what a sleeper agent is. And so now we, we know, and this has been going on for the longest time, that it's not just people from Mexico coming to the United States by running the border in order to, to work in a greasy spoon diner washing dishes. And we hear these arguments. Well, these immigrants, and they're not, they're illegal aliens, are doing the work Americans won't do. What work won't an American do? I, I was just on a wonderful television program with the, with the local Chamber of Commerce. I, I don't much care for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but in Pennsylvania, in Lehigh Valley, there's a Chamber of Commerce. The president of that Chamber of Commerce is, is a gentleman I've known for a long time. I have respect for him. His name is Tony Ionelli. And, in fact, I believe it's going to be airing in about two weeks. The program has 7.30 on <clears throat> Monday evenings. Um, Business Matters is his program. And he said to me, Mike, he said, I go to all these people. They have businesses. And they say, I can't find any Americans to do the work. What's your answer? And I said, tell them to pay them a little bit more money. Tell them to make working conditions reasonable. The reason people hire illegal aliens, folks, is because – they don't want to pay the going wage. They don't want to have to deal with labor laws or safety standards. When I've raided sweatshops, they were really sweatshops. The conditions were abysmal. I walked into factories, just like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, where the fire took place that killed hundreds of young women. You go into these factories, the fire exits were sealed shut. They couldn't get out. This isn't the way you treat people. No American is going to walk into that factory and say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do this job for $8 an hour. You've got to be kidding yourself if you believe that. Pay people a living wage, they will do the job. My dad was a construction worker. To him, no job was too dirty or dangerous or backbreaking. It was a job, and it meant a paycheck so he could support me and my dad could support my mother. I literally carried him off his job his last day of work because he was dying of lung cancer in part because he smoked those damn Chesterfield blowtorches, which is what I called his cigarettes. He'd sit at the table with those cigarettes, and the smoke would literally burn my lungs. I would have to get up and walk out. I never understood how he could do that. And then he worked in the Navy shipyards during the Second World War because he wanted to contribute to the war effort. His brother was already in the Army Air Corps, and because of the Sullivan brothers, five brothers who were killed on the same naval vessel, 
<clears throat> the military came down with a ruling that if you were the sole surviving male member of your family, you could not enlist in the armed forces because your life was valuable. You needed to carry the family name. That was the day of tradition and sanity. Believe it or not, America used to have traditions and sanity. Not so much today. So my father was desperate. More than anything, he wanted to go to Europe and kill Nazis. You know what? I understand it. I'm sure you do. It's a noble calling. Kill the enemies of America. Kill the perpetrators of the Holocaust. My father would have done anything to have gone there. When he realized he couldn't get into the military, he decided he'd work on the ships because he was a, a plumber, a pipe fitter. And he said, if I can't kill the bastards, at least I can help the guys who are doing the killing. But those ships were loaded with asbestos. So between the asbestos and the cigarettes, he died when he was 57. I carried him off his job his last day at work. And the men he worked with were just as stoic and just as courageous and just as principled and just as hardworking. Those men were the heart and soul of America. So when I hear this crap about work Americans won't do, and as I mentioned on Tony's program, we taped it yesterday, and I said, you know, this nonsense. I remember when Dwight Eisenhower was the president. I was in the fifth grade when Sputnik was launched. Eisenhower didn't go on national television and said, quick, call some country and have them send scientists to America. He said, we're going to teach American school children math and science so America will continue to maintain its leadership in the world. Educate Americans. And now we hear this crap from politicians from both political parties. In order for America to lead, we need to import the world's best and brightest. And who said that, by the way? Bill Gates. We're turning away the world's best and brightest at the time that we need them the most. Bill Gates said that. Really? My answer to all of them is we have a name for the world's best and brightest. We call them Americans. And if you think the schools aren't giving them a first-rate education that make them the world's best and brightest, and by God, make sure that those schools get the job done. This nonsense that's going on with the educational system, teaching propaganda while we educate the enemies of the United States. You look at all the engineers and all the computer programmers that we trained who came here from China so China can build up its military and spy on America and hack our computers and now they have the chutzpah to threaten us in the South China Sea? Well, they should, because we've been stupid. And Donald Trump stood up to China. And that's why the issue about Hunter Biden is significant. If Hunter Biden, if the investigation is ongoing, hopefully they won't shut it down. I don't even want to imagine the consequences of that. But if it turns out that a, a member of the Biden family is under investigation and is compromised, that means that undue pressure can be brought to bear against the president of the United States. That's why it's a relevant question, but the media didn't want to talk about it. That's not a newsworthy story. Don't the American people need to know that? You know, when I was hired by the Immigration Service, I had to undergo a security clearance, and it took months. And back then, it wasn't a private company. It was actually FBI agents went out, and they did the background investigation. And my neighbors came to me and said, are you in some kind of trouble? The FBI was just knocking on my door. They want to know about you. I had a couple of nosy neighbors, and they said, well, I can't talk about this until I talk to my lawyer. And I panicked some of my neighbors. I just couldn't resist the practical joke. But the point of the matter was to get a job that requires a security clearance, you, you have to be investigated. And, in fact, every five years, because I had a top-secret clearance, they had to redo my investigation. They went into banking records. They interrogated us for hours, and they would go out and speak to neighbors, and, and all sorts of people that the investigation would lead them into to make certain that I could not be blackmailed, that I could not be compromised. Common sense. If you are somebody who has access to security material and you could be blackmailed, then you could be coerced into divulging information that could harm America's national security. Is it unreasonable to expect any less from the commander-in-chief or high-ranking members of our government? That's what we're talking about. No one is really getting into the implications of all this. Who in the world are we putting in key positions or what motivates them? I've often joked that when you look at how much money goes into political campaigns, I think about the race cars on the track. 
And I think about the, the, the racing suits that these race car drivers drive. It's made out of something called Nomex, which is a fire-resistant material. It's one of the biggest risks in, in a car crash on the racetrack is fire. The cars are very good at crumpling up so you can stuff the car into a wall at 150 miles an hour and probably walk away. But if the car catches fire, then you could burn to death. So they, they wear a fireproof suit made out of Nomex. But when you look at the suits, they're festooned with every kind of logo, every kind of, um, you know, product um, identification. Why? Because these are the people that sponsor the race car. When you look at the race car, it's got all these decals on there for cigarettes and for booze and you name it, and there it is, right? Why is that? Because they help to fund the race car. Maybe we should do the same thing with the president's limo and Air Force One. Maybe we should have decals all over the damn thing so you know who contributed to the political campaign that got this guy elected in the first place. Maybe when he puts on a suit, it should also have all of those logos sewn onto his suit the way that the race drivers wear Nomex racing suits. How's that for an interesting thought? The best government money can buy. So we're struggling as Americans to find work. We're struggling to raise our children. Is this the time to throw open America's borders, let people in, including people from countries that sponsor terrorism? It's, we're lucky these 11 got caught. But who didn't get caught? Maybe there were 15 of them. Maybe there were 20 of them. Maybe five came yesterday, or maybe there's six of them sneaking across the border right now, but the Border Patrol missed them. And then you have this nonsense of catch and release. I'm going to tell you a story. I want you to understand that this isn't fantasy and it's not based on conjecture. One of the reasons that I was called by Congress after 9-11 was because they knew I had real-world experiences. I was honored that America was attacked, and within days my phone was ringing from members of Congress and, and several subcommittees. They said, Mike, you've done the job. We need you to come to Washington to help us protect America against the next attack. It's almost as though we didn't even bother with those hearings because nothing that we discussed is being followed by the Biden administration. That's an issue that Donald Trump should have hammered during the debate. But instead, he asked that ridiculous question. Hey, Joe, can you say law enforcement? I almost fell out of my chair. Hey, Joe, did you read the 9-11 Commission report? would have been my question. So let me tell you a story, and this is a real story. And it will give you an idea about what we are up against in the real world, because most people seem to think you arrest somebody, you fingerprint them, and the computer spits out 48 pages, and you know exactly who this guy is and who his brother is, and the last time he went out on a date. Oh, it's all there in the database. Nonsense. My very first fraud investigation, which was supposed to be a nothing case because I was a brand-new agent, was an Israeli young man two years younger than me or three years younger than me, who came in with an altered tourist visa. It was good for a single entry. He had already entered the United States the year before on that visa, and apparently he had changed the word one to the word two, valid for two admissions, and he changed the year of expiration because the visa had already expired. Well, under a black light, it was a very unsophisticated operation. This was back in 1976. And I had been an inspector for the four years prior to that, and then I became an agent. The inspector at the airport put the guy's passport under a black light, and immediately the fact that he erased things and changed things showed up. It lights up like Times Square. So they arrested him, and my assignment was very simple. My very first case that I could handle without a senior partner at my side, take a statement and see where it goes. Well, in questioning him, he denied anything and everything, but he kept calling Israel Palestine. He was from the West Bank. <clears throat> the hair on my neck stood up. When I asked him about his military service, he refused to answer my questions. I called the Israeli consulate. The consul general sent uh, three officials down to interview him. They were reluctant. They thought this is a nothing case. Why are we bothering? But they took my advice finally. And while they were interviewing him, because back then, Aliens who were held at our detention facility didn't wear orange jumpsuits the way they do today. Back then, they wore their street clothes. So the guy was wearing the clothing that he had arrived in the day before at the airport. And I noticed while he was being questioned, and I didn't notice it when I was talking to him, I guess I was so focused, and, you know, it was my first time doing this without a senior partner. 
But as the Israelis were interviewing him, I noticed that his shirt didn't fit properly. So I had him remove the shirt, which he was very reluctant to do, and then I knew why he didn't want to take it off. Because once he took off the shirt and handed it to me, when I opened it up, I, I looked inside, there was a pocket sewn inside the shirt, and in the pocket was a piece of paper that had a, an ink-drawn schematic with Arabic writing. I handed it over to the Israelis. After all, this is one of their citizens. They have jurisdiction over him. And they freaked out because it was a schematic of the oil refinery back in Israel. It was a terrorist plan to blow up the refinery, to get past the perimeter and blow up the refinery. Needless to say, the whole thing changed. One of my bosses told me, Mike, if you were to experience that, if you weren't, if we didn't, if, if we knew that this case was going to turn into this, we never would have given it to you. We just thought it was a nothing case. But if you want to keep this investigation, since you did so well with it, we'll let you keep it, which I did. I was very happy to. But the point is there's no such thing, first of all, as a minor investigation because you never know where investigations lead you. Very often they go nowhere. In a normal situation, the guy would have admitted that he did it, he was coming to work, and we would have sent him home. Problem solved. But suddenly we realized he was here to get the money to buy the explosives. The Israelis immediately launched into an investigation in Israel. The FBI was brought into the investigation, and the Israelis were able to arrest six would-be co-conspirators about a week before the attack was to take place. From that day on, I had a great relationship with the Israeli National Police. And the people that were within the INS all knew that if you were working on a case involving Israelis, call Mike Cutler up. And when I became a senior special agent with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, we went for training down at Quantico. We used the DEA facilities that shared with the FBI. And everyone shared information and contact information And about a year later, I'm sitting at my desk, and I remember it like yesterday. This was around 1991, 1992. The phone rings at about 5.30 at night. I was getting ready to leave, in fact. It was a Friday night. One of the guys I met in Houston called me up. He was from Houston, rather. I met him at at, at Quantico. And he said, Mike, we have a, a bizarre case. Maybe you can help us. I said, all right, what have you got? He said, we were doing surveillance on a drug location. It's a stash house for a major drug smuggling operation. And we saw a guy walk out of the house with a big bag. We followed him. He got into a truck. We approached the truck. And as we got near the truck, we saw a sawed-off shotgun lying on the floor next to his feet. They pulled their guns out. The guy looked Mexican. This was in a Mexican neighborhood. He had black curly hair. He had a dark, swarthy complexion. And in Spanish, they yelled at him to get out of the car and raise his hands. He had no idea what they were talking about. So they yelled at him in English, get out of the car. He still didn't know. So they pulled him out of the car at gunpoint. They find a sort of shotgun. They found, I think, another couple of weapons. They found a load of drugs in the, in the truck. The bag he was carrying had narcotics in it. And as they're questioning him, the guy could barely speak English. So they started digging around in the van. And they found that he had taken his passport, apparently when they approached, tore it in half and stuffed the passport, the passport into the upholstery of the van, into the seat where he was sitting. It was an Israeli passport. He's what we would call a Sabra, a dark-complected uh, Israeli who looked almost exactly like a Latino. Now, why do I tell you the story? Because... Here you had Border Patrol agents, the DEA agents, immigration agents looking at this guy. And these guys are old-timers. And they're looking at this young man, and they were convinced he was Mexican, and it turned out he was Israeli. You can't tell without a scorecard very often. And they wanted me to see what I could find out through my contacts within the Israeli consulate, and they did the usual sterling job. I've had the privilege of working with many law enforcement agencies. I got an award from Japan. I worked with the British Customs and uh, made an arrest to help out uh, New Scotland Yard. We arrested a guy wanted for murder in England. He fled to the United States. I worked with uh, the RCMP. You name it, I've worked with them. But the Israelis have a special place in my heart. They would actually fly their criminals home at their expense. And if we needed information, they would give it to us without hesitation. In fact, we were doing a wiretap on an Israeli drug smuggling operation, apart from this one, and Israel sent us a half dozen of their police officers to help with the wiretap 
because regular translators wouldn't understand the drug jargon of the Israeli mob. So they sent us police officers who were very skilled and helped us to gain some very serious convictions and dismantle a major drug smuggling operation. So when I called them up, they asked me who the guy was. I told them they actually flew a diplomatic pouch from Israel to New York the following week, and it contained a dossier on this individual. And it was quite thick, and it turned out that he was part of the civilian group that worked along the Bekaa Valley um, in Israel. And it's believed that he was smuggling drugs through from Lebanon into Israel and also involved with the smuggling of drugs from Mexico into the United States along with a whole bunch of others. So we worked to dismantle this drug smuggling operation. Now, why am I telling you the story? Because the agents who first encountered this guy were absolutely convinced that he was Mexican when he was Israeli. And the same thing could happen with somebody who is Arabic. Sometimes you could look at somebody and be totally confused as to who he is and where he or she might be from. And when people say, well, we're not going to let terrorists in, if you add to the fact that the person has no criminal history, what have you got? You have nothing. Most of the 9-11 hijackers were unknown to law enforcement in the United States. A few of them were, but the majority were not. So when you are releasing people into the United States, because we now have catch and release, because our facilities are overflowing, I assure you that among them will be fugitives and criminals, and the potential is quite real, terrorists. Terrorists. Iran is looking to build a nuclear weapon. They've warned us that they want to do harm to us. And how many terrorists does it take to kill a lot of people? Look at the Boston Marathon, two brothers. Look at 9-11. 19 hijackers killed more people than we lost to, Pearl, uh, to the Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So where is the good news for Americans that we're back to catch and release on the Mexican border. And by the way, we're back to catch and release where ICE is concerned because they frequently don't have the resources to hold on to illegal aliens they arrest if they're allowed to arrest them. And then we have sanctuary cities giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens who can't prove who they are. And motor vehicles, not airplanes, but what are generally used in terror attacks, truck bombs and car bombs. That's why we have all these barriers all over the place protecting against vehicles with bombs. And meanwhile, we have no idea who we're giving licenses to. Where is the good news for Americans? We're worried about people coming into the United States with a a more virulent strain of the COVID virus. So much so that President Biden and Governor Cuomo have said, we need to block people from coming to the United States from South Africa, Brazil, England, and other European countries because They are bringing that virus with them. Okay, they're right. This is similar to what President Trump did with China, and then he expanded it to to Italy and other European countries and was accused of xenophobia, I would remind you, just a year ago. Just about a year ago, he was xenophobic. We were told, go to Chinatown and celebrate the Chinese New Year unless you're a bigot. So now, has Biden and Cuomo become bigots? So they want the immigration laws enforced, but only at the airports, but we'll ignore the Mexican border. How does this make a lick of sense to anybody? So I keep coming back to the same fundamental question. Where is the good news for Americans in the policies of the Biden administration? This isn't xenophobia. Okay? This is common sense about protecting the lives and livelihoods of Americans. That's what the immigration laws are all about. So on the one hand, Biden says we're not going to let them in. In fact, President Trump said, let's end the moratorium on people from England if they take the COVID test. And Biden said, no, 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 we're not letting them in. He wouldn't do what Trump wanted, which was to allow Brits in. He said, we're not allowing anyone from England in. So he wants immigration enforcement, but not on the Mexican border. I want someone to explain this because maybe my brain is too old. Maybe I'm just a fool. So on the one hand, he wants more stringent immigration controls over people from Great Britain coming through international airports, he meaning Biden, than Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was the bigot and the racist and the hater. And we have a wide open Mexican border, basically. 
How does this help Americans? That's, that's my question. It's a simple question that I would like to see some damn reporter stand up in the White House and ask that question. How are the policies of the Biden administration helpful to Americans? Why should Americans feel good about what the president is or is not doing? Is that not a reasonable question? I mean, didn't Abe Lincoln talk about an American government that was of the people, by the people, and for the people? Are we just talking about the lobbyists, the bribers, if you will? Or are we talking about the citizens of the United States of America? How does it help Americans that they're now competing with more foreign workers today than at any time in the past? How is that good? Where's the good news here, folks? I'm, I'm looking for some good news. It's Friday night. The weekend is coming. I want to be happy. So where's the good news? Let me read something to you. I know I've read it before, but this is really important. Um, by the way, I, I want you to know that this isn't a left-right issue. For those of you who think I'm, I'm, I'm doing left-right, no, it's not. Um, John Hostetler, I, I was testifying at this hearing back in 2005. Hostetler, a Republican, chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee back then, was really upset with how the Department of Homeland Security was put together. And he, he went through this whole thing, and you, you could read the, the, the statement. It was a new dual missions of the immigration enforcement agencies on May 5th, 2005. But, but here's what it all boils down to. He was upset that they cut immigration enforcement in half, which they weren't supposed to. In other words, ICE and Customs and Border Protection weren't supposed to be divided in half. That created headaches that you can't begin to imagine, something called the third agency rule that became unwieldy. And then... They added to it agriculture and air marshals and and TSA and Federal Protective Service for the buildings, all kinds of crazy stuff, and U.S. Customs has nothing to do with immigration. And he went on at length about all that and said that what Bush gave us, Bush, George W., after 9-11, after we knew that it was immigration laws that created the problem, he gave us immigration incoherence, making it impossible to secure the borders or protect Americans. I just want to read this one a sentence from, from that, or two sentences. This is John Hostetler, Republican chairman. Took a lot of chutzpah and a, a moral, um, you know, a moral leader does this. 9-11 terrorists all came to the United States without weapons or contraband. Added customs enforcement, because again, immigration and customs enforcement. Crazy, that never should have been created. It violates the law, by the way. The Homeland Security Act did not call for this kind of a structure. He violated the Homeland Security Act and got away with it. The 9-11 terrorists all came to the United States without weapons or contraband. Added customs enforcement would not have stopped 9-11 from happening. What might have foiled al-Qaeda's plan was additional immigration focus, vetting, and enforcement. And so what is needed is the recognition that, one, immigration is a very important national security issue that cannot take a backseat to customs or agriculture, Two, immigration is a very complex issue, and immigration enforcement agencies need experts in immigration enforcement. He said that because most of the people put in charge of the various components of Homeland Security had zero immigration experience. That was willful on the part of George W. Bush. Do you wonder why his brother, Jeb Bush, during the campaign said that illegal immigration was an act of love? I wrote an article where I said Jeb was looking for love in all the wrong places, okay? So he said that, the immigration enforcement agencies need experts in immigration enforcement. And three, and this is critical, folks, the leadership of our immigration agency should be shielded from political pressures to act in a way which could compromise the nation's security. He almost saw Joe Biden in that crystal ball, and that was 16 years ago, 2005. But now in addition to that, we talk about foreign workers. Why don't we look at something that Alan Greenspan had to say about how you deal with wage inequality. You know, we're always being told about wage inequality and how terrible it is and what we need to do to solve wage inequality. So he said, he said this. Now, this is about the high-tech workers. He also was all excited about bringing in undocumented, unauthorized aliens. He said, I know the American people don't like it, but they only minimally suppress the wages of Americans. Cities may pay a price, but businesses, you know, it was all about what's good for business, not what's good for the government, not what's good for the American people, not what's good for national security, not, not what's good for anything. 
but what's good for the businesses, you see. And then he gets to the high-tech workers, and he quotes Alan He quoted Bill Gates for the punctuation, okay? Bill Gates wants us. We must do it. Bill Gates wants Why? Who elected Bill Gates, right? The guy that tells us what vaccines to take, and the guy was a, high, was a college dropout and wasn't even studying biology. I, I love it. Might makes right, I guess. When you have a fat checkbook like Gates, you have to be right, don't you? So these are the two benefits, according to Greenspan, and it's infuriating. This is why we need many more H-1B. Basically, throw the door open, which is what Biden is doing, folks. So now you'll know why he's doing it and what we can expect as a consequence. Trump tried to stop this. Congress voted for it, both houses, both parties. They're all in. You wonder why they wanted Trump out? So listen. First, these are the benefits. Skilled workers and their families form new households. They will, of necessity, move into vacant housing units. What a poetic way of describing an American home lost to foreclosure, vacant housing units. The current glut of which is the depressing prices of American homes. By the way, this is back in 2008 when the market came apart because of the greed of the bankers. <laughs> greed of the bankers, that's a novel idea. And, of course, house price declines are a major factor in mortgage foreclosures and the plunge in value of the vast quantity of U.S. mortgage-backed securities that have contributed substantially to the disabling of our banking system. Both. It was his subprime mortgages that did that. But, again, this is Greenspan. But the second paragraph, the second benefit, uh, all I could say is if you have problems with high blood pressure, take your pill now. I'll give you 30 seconds. Avoid the rush later. Because I will tell you, you, you could have a, 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 a blood vessel burst when you listen to this. Here we go. The second bonus of, of huge numbers of high-tech visas would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. In other words, someone's making too much money, but I assure you he's not talking about Bill Gates and he's not talking about himself. The second bonus would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. Greatly expanding our quotas for the highly skilled would lower wage premiums of the skilled over the lesser skilled. In other words, we're going to slash the salaries of highly educated, highly skilled, and highly experienced Americans. We're going to kill the middle class is what he's saying, isn't it? Right? Greatly expanding our quotas for the highly skilled would lower wage premiums of the skilled over the lesser skilled. Skill shortages in America exist because we are shielding our skilled labor force from world competition. Quotas have been substituted for the wage pricing mechanism, and in the process, we have created, and you're going to love this term, folks, a privileged elite. When did you ever hear anybody in public describe American high-tech middle-class workers, middle-class workers, as the privileged elite? In the process, we've created a privileged elite whose incomes are being supported at non-competitively high levels by immigration quotas on skilled professionals. Eliminating such restrictions would reduce at least some of our income inequality. By the way, the reason they want to reform the immigration laws, because right now the laws say you're not supposed to hire workers if you would have an adverse impact on Americans. And he's complaining that we're making Americans able to make more money by shielding them. He wants to take that shield down. The hell with the immigration laws, the hell with American workers, and the hell with the middle class. And Joe Biden is right there with him, and they are going to flood America with high-tech workers. Wow. The question of the day, folks, how do the Biden policies provide anything worthwhile for Americans? Please Remember to get involved. Read my articles at Front Page Magazine. And when you have the conversations with your neighbors, ask them that question. How are these policies good for the average American family? That's the question journalists should be asking our leaders. Get involved, folks. Please remember, democracy is not a spectator sport. I hope you all have a wonderful, safe weekend. Stay well. Get involved. Have those conversations. And tune in next week. And join me right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. See you next week, folks.